Welcome to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroidis. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at nixonfoundation.org. Today we're talking again about the relationship between President Nixon and the late President George Herbert Walker Bush. Our guest today is former Governor of New Hampshire and White House Chief of Staff to President Bush, John Sununu. Governor Sununu is also the author of a memoir of his time in the Bush White House, The Quiet Man, the indispensable presidency of George H.W. Bush. Governor Sununu, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be on. You were White House Chief of Staff during a critical critical time uh, in the 20th century, in 20th century history. Um, how did you come to befriend President Bush and become a part of uh, the White House staff? Well, I was uh, uh, running for governor in 1982, and I had just won a primary and, um, and uh, quickly called President Bush, introduced myself to him, asked him to come up and do a fundraiser for me, and he did. Uh, since our primaries in September and the election was November, uh, his willingness to do it on short notice was critical, and that started a, a friendship that developed uh, over the six years I was governor, and certainly Vice President Bush at that time was smart enough to know that it's a good idea to uh, develop a good relationship with the governor of New Hampshire, where the first primary is. Then ran uh, part of his campaign, uh, the general campaign in 88 against Michael Dukakis. Dukakis was our uh, governor of our neighboring state in Massachusetts. And again, our relationship got even closer. And I think he understood that uh, that uh, a former governor understood issues. or a governor, I was governor at that time, but a soon-to-be former governor. I think he understood governors understood issues. He he felt strong on foreign policy. He wanted somebody who understood domestic policy well, and and uh, he asked me to be his chief of staff uh, just uh, before the election, and I accepted just after the election. You were chief of staff during a critical time, as I mentioned. Um, it, the Soviet Union um, was in free fall. Um, the Middle East, um, sort of a complex situation uh, there with the uh, with the Gulf War and the Israeli-Palestinian situation um, in China. Um, China was just coming off the um, uh, the issue, the massacre at uh, Tiananmen Square, and they were given most favored nation status. Uh, could you detail um, just a bit what the world looked like when um, shortly after, when you became chief of staff when George Herbert Walker Bush was president? Well, I've often said that I, I had the great fortune to be chief of staff during the three and a half of the most exciting years this country has ever had in terms of uh, foreign policy impact. Um, the, the world uh, knew things were changing. Uh, George Herbert Walker Bush had been vice president to Ronald Reagan, uh, who, who had rebuilt America's defense strength. And as a result, uh, I think the Soviets were beginning to understand they could not keep up economically or militarily. They had a new leader, Gorbachev, who was signaling that it was time for that, that he might consider it was time for change and and coming closer to the West in terms of interactions and trade and 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 uh, a much more tranquil set of relationships between 
of the Soviet Union and uh, the European nations as well as the U.S., and he was hinting that he might uh, let the Eastern European nations become self-determ- have self-determination instead of just being occupied by Soviet troops. Uh, and on the other side of the world, the Chinese uh, had uh, begun to uh, let the world know that they were somewhat important. Uh, the Nixon initiatives had uh, opened things up, uh, certainly, and China uh, accepted uh, visitors and, and was talking more than they had uh, uh, historically. And, and so th- there was a sense of change in the air. There was even a sense of potential for settling the most complex issue on the planet, which seemed to be uh, the, the Israeli-Palestinian issue. So those three issues um, um, were certainly an important part of, of uh, if you will, the president's agenda, but he also understood that the Western Hemisphere had been neglected and, and wanted to reestablish relationships um, between the U.S. and the Latin American countries. We had always had good relationships, but they had stagnated economically. So George Bush also had on his plate as part of the agenda uh, a recognition of the importance of our neighbors in the Western Hemisphere. And and I would say that set of issues encompassed uh, what he wanted to look at in his first term, which turned out to be the only term, uh, but but certainly uh, provided uh, enough uh, for him to uh, recognize that important things could be done if only he could figure out how to do them. And then that's the key question. I mean, this Francis Fukuyama said that this period of time, he coined the term uh, the end of history. Um, obviously, there's a lot of um, you know complex issues during this period of time. Um, was the United States in the sort of as the sole superpower, were we in the driver's seat to grapple with all these um, complex complex issues? Well, we were in the driver's seat in terms of strength and defense. Um, we, we were uh, in the driver's seat in terms of the world finally recognizing that, that they were really needed to continue to follow U.S. leadership. Uh, Margaret Thatcher had come into uh, office in, in uh, the U.K. during the Reagan administration, uh, Gorbachev had come into power in the last few year, couple of years of, of the Reagan administration. Mitterrand was in power in France, uh, but they all uh, recognized that that individually they just couldn't do anything. They could collectively if they joined with the U.S. And that's really where the transition from Reagan to Bush was so important because. Uh, although there was huge opportunity, it wasn't clear how to do it. And George Bush spent uh, the first couple of months in office sitting down and talking with people um, on what what the right course of action was. And it, <laughs> his patience created an impatience in the press. And if you go back, you will see uh, editorials written by uh, folks at the Times and the Post criticizing him for not knowing what to do, not understanding how important the opportunity was. All these self-proclaimed uh, geniuses uh, who turned out to be absolutely wrong in the long run. And the president had the discipline to, to consult with people. And, and interestingly enough, one of the people he relied on for good advice uh, was Richard Nixon. Uh, he he always had a great relationship uh, with President Nixon. He had served as his 
representative to the UN for almost two years. He had served in a very graceful way, although certainly was one of those who advised the president of the, the difficulty of his position. Um, but but Sir Bush was serving as chairman of the Republican National Committee in the last few months of the Nixon administration. And so George Bush uh, did have a respectful relationship with him and, and counted on him uh, to, to really um, uh, be there if he needed to ask him for advice or what his views of what was going on in the world. And Richard Nixon felt comfortable enough with George Bush to, to send him memos, um, uh, really brilliantly written, very detailed and sometimes very long memos on issues that he thought were critical, and George Bush just ate those up. Uh, he he uh, valued uh, the fact that he was somebody he could talk to who he felt understood the nuances of what was going on in the world uh, uh, as well as, as he felt he and his advisors, uh, uh, Jimmy Baker, uh, Brent Scowcroft, myself as chief of staff, uh, we would get involved in conversations, and, and he would bring out uh, the, the Nixon memos, and we would review what the president had said. What? When did you? When did you first meet uh, Richard Nixon? I had a very interesting opportunity, either December of seven of, of seventy nine or January of eighty. My wife happened to be the chairman of the Republican National Committee in New Hampshire before I became governor and before I got into serious politics. So she was chairman. And the uh, New York State Republican Committee uh, politely and kindly invited us down to a very high-dollar fundraising event. I think it was $25,000 a couple. We were fortunately complimentary. <laughs> but we, uh, Richard Nixon was the, was, uh, had agreed, uh, and this was a time when he was just coming out of... Uh, uh, his sort of post-presidency uh, isolation, just coming out of it. And they, they sat us uh, at, at a dinner with a kind of a square structured table, uh, about 40 couples, and we were part of that. And at the end of dinner, Richard Nixon stood up and for two hours, uh, without a note, uh, kept the, the, the group spellbound. Uh, with a discussion of what was going on in the world. He talked about Brezhnev, who was then running the Soviet Union. He, he talked about Valerie de Stein, uh, who was president of France. He talked to uh, Margaret Thatcher, was just moving into uh, uh, being considered as, as uh, prime minister in, in the U.K. And, and he went almost country by country around the world, talking about the issues that were occurring there, the country's relationship with the U.S., the opportunities for the U.S., and how the personalities of the leaders of those countries had to be taken into consideration as, as the U.S. formulated its responses uh, to what was going on in the world in 1980. And, and it, it was unbelievable. The shame of it, I'm, I've often said, is that, that I'm sure nobody recorded it because I've never been able to find a recording of it. But to me, it was the best and most masterful uh, two-hour presentation on foreign policy I've ever heard. And, and that was my uh, introduction to the president, President Nixon. Uh, we chatted a little bit afterwards, had, the, uh, of course, the requisite photographs taken, which he signed for me, and, and we have here. But, but it was really, as I called it earlier, a tour de force that was unbelievable.
Talking a little bit about uh, President Nixon's um, foreign policy acumen, um, you had mentioned earlier um, a little bit about how the the memos that President Nixon uh, sent to President Bush and how you, uh, the president, and a um, and, and some of his foreign policy advisors would um, would uh, take them into um, consideration. Um, speaking about the downfall of the Soviet Union um, and how the Bush administration could shape, um, you know, could shape the um, uh, the future of U.S. Uh, Russia relations and some of, and the the independent states that came out of the uh, that came out of that period. Um, how did President Nixon believe uh, the United States could shape those relationships? Well, I I think uh, it one of the interesting memos he did write was in '91, um, uh, where he uh, just after he had visited Moscow, I believe. And and um, he he wrote uh, I don't know if my recollection it was about ten pages uh, a memo to the president uh, uh, to to give George Bush his views on what was happening and and this was a very critical time uh, in the Soviet Union uh, the Berlin Wall had fallen a year earlier uh, elections had taken place in Poland. Uh, Czechoslovakia and Hungary and, and all the Eastern European countries had, had seen the light and they were all declaring their ind- independence and having elections. And Gorbachev had signaled his willingness to let that happen. It had occurred. And now uh, the crumbling, if you will, was coming inside the Soviet Union as some of the republics were getting restless and the Soviet Union was about to transition from a collection of republics uh, to being primarily Russia and a bunch of friendly republics, not not aligned as strongly as they were under the USSR, and so he wrote a memo to the president, and and uh, the first two, uh, uh, my recollection is the first two sentences in there, he emphasized the collapse of the economy in the Soviet Union, and that the empire was dis- disintegrating, and and he. He then went on to talk about the details of what he had seen in there, uh, about the suffering of the Soviet people, how the economy collapsing, uh, things were worse then than they had been in some of the bad days before. Uh, and and uh, he talked a little bit about uh, uh, the impact this was having on Gorbachev, that there was finally a strain, was he, although most people didn't notice it, uh, Richard Nixon sensed that there was both a physical and psychological strain on Gorbachev, and and this was very important for for George Bush because Bush always tried to put himself in the other person's shoes as he negotiated, and and tried to be mindful of of, of making everything win-win, and 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 I think uh, th- this, uh, if you will, this cautionary message from Richard Nixon on Gorbachev was an important part. Of, of the way Bush handled those days. And then Richard Nixon, I thought, was very prescient in pointing out that, that Yeltsin, uh, who was in many places in the press being treated as a buffoon, um, and who later on transitioned through being a great, strong leader and then back to a buffoon, uh, uh, Yeltsin um, surprised Nixon with both his... Uh, capacity to understand things, uh, his support for for private over ownership, for example, uh, he his recognition of uh, the fact that uh, 
that uh, some of the republics had to be let go. Uh, his recognition that uh, it was not smart to continue sending money to places like Cuba and Afghanistan. So, so Nixon's conversation with Yeltsin uh, really was an important uh, confirmation of a sense that, that had been developing in the White House that, that we were going to have to take Yeltsin seriously. And uh, again, uh, it, it, it made it easier for George Bush to come to that conclusion, having received the memo from Richard Nixon. Nixon wrote a, um, on the Gulf War, Nixon wrote a lengthy policy memo to President Bush uh, of military, diplomatic, and political advice um, about Iraq. Um, among the advice was not to link the settlement of the Israeli-Palestinian issue with Saddam Hussein's withdrawal from Kuwait. Um, and to receive a greater financial contribution from Japan and Western European countries and receive bipartisan uh, domestic political support. Um, how did the Bush administration react to this council, uh, President Nixon's guidance on the on the Gulf? Yeah, that uh, it, it had the advantage of both being right and coinciding with uh, George Bush's perception of, uh, and Jimmy Baker's and Scowcross and, and mine and others who were advising the president. Um, uh, the, on, on what the right way to go was. Uh, it was sort of novel in the sense that uh, uh, getting other people to pay if they don't participate uh, was a novel uh, uh, initiative that, that Baker executed perfectly following the advice of, of President Nixon in the sense that Baker and Bush had anyway. Um, the president uh, also... Um, George Bush also went uh, to Congress to get support. Uh, he gained support out of uh, the House quite easily. Uh, it was more of a struggle in the Senate where George Mitchell really, in a very partisan way, tried to keep Democrats from voting for it, uh, where, where uh, really uh, we almost we had to lobby one by one, and I think we eventually got 51 votes. I remember lobbying about a, a dozen senators individually. Jimmy Baker had about the same amount. Uh, Scowcroft had the same amount. And, of course, when we had somebody significant that, that we had to really get over the top, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush was always ready to have him visit him in the Oval Office and try to put the last selling message on them. So we, we ended up with 51 votes. Uh, but but going to Congress uh, was consistent with the recommendation that we did get from President Nixon, uh, and 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 President Nixon was consistent all along in in his views on how to deal in the Middle East, uh, in his recommendations to President Bush. Uh, President Nixon had a, a a broad feeling that it was time to recognize that uh, great development had taken place in the Arab countries, that they had developed economically, that oil had given them economic strength, uh, that they were significant contributors to the world economy, that they had spent a lot of that oil revenue on building a military uh, strength in a number of the countries there that was significant and, and, and uh certainly were not in the same situations they were in, in terms of strength 25 and 30 years earlier. And he urged President Bush to recognize that, that he ought to be dealing 
in the Middle East with a, a more even-handed approach uh, in terms of the relationship between the Israelis and the Arab countries and the Arab countries, Israelis, and the U.S., and, and was always consistent with that message. And, and you could read it in that memo uh, as, as going, uh, it was being interwoven uh, amongst the lines that he had written down for the president. In, in addition to being an avid watcher of the Middle East and Russia, Nixon was also the country's preeminent China watcher. And this is something that Bush was also uh, deeply invested in as well, um, you know, obviously being president, but before that being President Nixon's special envoy um, to the People's Republic of China um, and as this director of the CIA and as uh, vice president. China, always a, a big issue throughout President Bush's career. Um, did Nixon offer any counsel to um President uh, President Bush, as China especially was going through uh, many of its uh, economic and, and social changes at the time? Well, one of the most critical pieces of advice uh, from President Nixon came through, through one of the most difficult periods for George Bush, the George Bush administration, that occurred in, in 89, uh, in April of 89, uh, the, the protest in Tiananmen, in Tiananmen Square broke out. I think they lasted about six weeks into the first week of June, and and certainly the world reaction was uh, one of uh, uh, really horror in terms of how aggressive the Chinese finally became at the end there and breaking up the protests with the tanks and uh, and I think over a thousand or two thousand people were were killed. And the immediate reaction, at least from amongst a number of the political figures in the U.S., was, was uh, you know, huge sanctions and huge this and huge that. Uh, everybody wanted an, an overwhelming response. And, and George Bush uh, really recognized that, that it was important to think in the long term, and, and I, I do recall, I think in the first week in June, maybe uh, someday in, in the middle of the first week in June, uh, Bush picked up the phone and called Richard Nixon just bef- just after the last uh, horrible acts in the square, is my recollection, and they had a long conversation, and uh, Richard Nixon cautioned the president to think in the long term. Uh, to recognize how complicated uh, Chinese leadership is and, and how Chinese leadership thinks in the long term but but react uh, in the long term to uh, things that they consider affronts in the short term. And and so he urged the president to, to create a a process in which there could be a, a an informal continuation of communication even while the world was condemning what was going on in China, and and, and Bush uh, wisely uh, responded with uh, a tempered response. He wrote a pretty tough letter to Deng Xiaoping um, uh, in the middle of the activities at uh, Tiananmen, and then he wrote, in my recollection, he wrote a second letter following the conversation uh, with President Nixon, and then uh, sent uh, Scowcroft over to China a, a few months later, a couple of months later, uh, as uh, in a quiet, uh, but but it ended up not staying quiet, uh, visit to China to at least indicate to him, to the Chinese, and to Deng in particular, with a private conversation that, that uh, 
was held in China, uh, that that uh, the U.S. would look forward to a resumption of a stronger relationship if the Chinese could clean up their act and, and basically uh, return themselves to being a, a nation not seen as uh, so abusive to their own people, but one that recognized uh, human rights uh, within China. And, and the Chinese gave lip service to that. They moved in that direction. And, and a lot of the uh, ability of the world to have any influence in China and in investment in China and participate in bringing China into uh, letting its people have a little bit more open society and more economic freedom, at least, uh, was was triggered by uh, the response of George Bush uh, to a very difficult situation with a response that was very consistent with the recommendations he received from Richard Nixon. President Nixon was a, um, his primary interest was foreign policy. Um, as president, he obviously had to deal with domestic policy as well. Um, he was also the veteran of um, many uh, political campaigns, um, at, at least three presidential uh, campaigns and two vice presidential campaigns. Um, did he offer any advice in this, any counsel in, in this area in terms of, um, you know, getting things done politically um, you know, working with the Hill campaigns. Did he did he offer any sort of advice in this area? Well, it's interesting. There's an interesting parallel between Richard Nixon and, and, and George Herbert Walker Bush. On the fact, they both ended up being pretty good domestic presidents as well as foreign policy presidents, but their foreign policy has, has for a while overshadowed their domestic performances. Uh, George Bush passed more domestic legislation than any American president uh, except Lyndon Johnson or Franklin Roosevelt, uh, including the um, Civil Rights Bill, the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, the uh, Clean Air Act, the uh, budget bill that was so much criticized at the time that ended up turning... Uh, generating for the country the only surpluses it's ever had in the last few uh, decades. So, uh, and, and Nixon started the uh, EPA. He, he certainly uh, focused on uh, issues that were consistent with the changing economy. And, and, and so both the presidents did a lot domestically, but uh, didn't quite get credit for it in the early years after they left office, but historians are beginning to give them credit for it. In terms of advice, it's one area that I never saw uh, Richard Nixon uh, interact directly with the president, but uh, I received uh, probably on half a dozen occasions as chief of staff uh, calls from the president, uh, from President Nixon, uh, commenting on issues that were going on, and generally he threw a tidbit in there as to what he thought uh, might be worthwhile on domestic issues. Uh, I remember one time he wrote me, uh, we were battling um, uh, an environmental issue, and, and he wrote me a, a long handwritten letter uh, re- telling me that uh, that uh, the White House was right in in holding on against extreme environmentalism and and the interesting thing about the letter that I always remember and, and I remember it about all the letters from Richard Nixon is the ones that came in handwritten had an ever increasing indentation as he went down the page but uh, he did comment uh, on the phone to me on issues and and in writing uh, on on domestic issues and I think he expected me then 
and which I did, of course, uh, take the message into the president. Uh, I think he communicated with the president directly on on the foreign policy stuff, and he took advantage of having a chief of staff that he felt comfortable talking to or writing to uh, to talk to about the domestic policy issues. They often call the relationship between presidents a special club. Um, Nancy Gibbs and Michael Duffy, journalists, have called it a president's club. Uh, it's even in the name of their book. Um, mm-hmm. What can the relationship between President Nixon and Bush, who saw eye to eye on many things, but not always saw not always saw eye to eye, eye, to eye teach us about political relationships, especially those at the presidential uh, level today? Uh, you know. Uh Presidents, former presidents and presidents understand um, uh, that they that they have gone through something that only a handful of people, uh, you know, in modern times have done, and and they they respect the fact that that decision making in the White House is not a simple process. Uh, pundits make it look simple when they write about it. Um, uh, politicians who criticize make it look simple. Uh, but anybody who goes through the Nixon Library, anybody who goes through the George Herbert Walker Bush Library, anybody who goes through any presidential library and takes the time to look at, at uh, the White House process understands how complicated it is. Former presidents recognize it immediately. As, uh, and and I have not seen any former president who was unwilling to take a call from a sitting president and not answer and give confidential advice uh, whenever asked. And and I think, uh, uh, the, obviously, the closer the personal relationship to begin with, the more often those calls of, and questions will come. Uh, and and so, certainly the closer the relationship uh perhaps the more respected the advice will be treated. Um, uh, So it's a special relationship. It's a relationship based on shared experience, shared understanding of how complicated things are, and and a uh, welcoming when when the president receives those kinds of of recommendations or advice. I think it's welcomed by any president. Uh, And one of the most important things in the whole process is that uh, traditionally uh, that advice has been kept confidential. And I, I think uh, that combination of respect and confidentiality makes the presidential relationships and the, and the former presidential relationships involved in that one of the great assets uh, chief executives in the United States will have. Our guest today is Governor John Sununu, former governor of New Hampshire and White House chief of staff to George Herbert Walker Bush. Our topic was President Nixon's policy counsel to the late President Bush and their relationship. Uh, Governor Sununu, thank you so much for your, for joining us today. Thank you. Enjoyed doing it. Please check back for future podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. This is Jonathan Lavroy signing off.